I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in our series, God and the Whole Person. Why did Jesus bother asking certain people, what do you want, or what do you want me to do for you, or do you want to be healed? Did he really want to know? Was it rhetorical, a test? Would different answers invite different outcomes? And how would you answer the question if Jesus asked? You know, sometimes you don't know why you think a thing about God. Not in the moment, anyway. You can trace it backward like a detective, usually with someone's help, and maybe then the thing that you think or the history of the thing that you think will begin to take shape. You think this thing about God because of something that happened to you at church. A long time ago it happened. It didn't seem to mean much back then, but it did, and it haunts you. Or you think this thing about God because of your dad. Or you think this thing about God because of pop culture. Some people, for example, believe God controls the world. Unilaterally, he controls it from dust particles to serial killers. All God pulling the strings. But what's interesting is that, yes, some people believe that with all kinds of theological fervor. They've thought thought it through. They write books about that kind of thing. But other people can't say why. They believe it was God behind the horrible thing that happened. They just always heard God is in control or everything happens for a reason, and they just sort of assumed, I guess. A while back, a friend reached out to me, knowing that I'm a Bible teacher by trade, and he asked if I believe that God has a moral paradigm for sexuality. I told him that I do. And he said to me, I just don't feel like God would deem certain expressions of sexuality, quote-unquote, sinful. He didn't feel like it. His words, not mine. Why not? I asked him. He didn't know exactly. But it's my job to, in, in a sense, think things about God and tell other people about it. I read Bible and theology all throughout the week, and I attempt to amalgamate what I'm learning into a half hour block of talking on Sunday evening. And I'm still learning that sometimes you don't know why you think a thing about God. See, I spent years in therapy working on this stuff. And eventually I sort of transitioned to something called spiritual direction. Spiritual direction, if you're not familiar, at least in my case, is me meeting with another pastor who's much older than me with way more experience than me who's trained in the ancient art of offering spiritual guidance to other disciples of Jesus And a few meetings in to spiritual direction, he called me on the way I was describing my discipleship, the way I was describing God. I was going on about my stage of life and my vocation and how I want to honor God's call on my life. And he asked me, well, what do you want to do? And I said something like, well, you know, what does that matter? I want to do what God says I'm supposed to do. And he asked me, why do you assume that those are two different things? If you love God... And if you're working to follow the way of Jesus faithfully, then why do you think that God doesn't want you to get what you want? And in the moment, I was at a loss. I guess I didn't know why I thought that about God. But part of me does, maybe. And yet, with limited space to tell the world's most important story, the authors of the New Testament write this kind of thing more than once. Here's one of my favorite quotations of Jesus. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. He saw Jesus passing by. He said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? (laughs) What do you want? 
Or, when Jesus saw a man lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? What kind of question is that? Do you want to get well? Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10 in the New Testament. Tonight we begin a a series to last throughout the season of Lent, leading up to Easter, God, and the whole person. Now, part of my job is to kind of cast a vision for each new season of our church in terms of what we're studying and how the sermon series contributes to the life of the church with, again, a team of other people who are much more pastoral and smart than me. And together, we sort of hope to pave a way forward for the season of life at our church. So last year, months ago, I was looking ahead to Ash Wednesday and to Lent, And I sat down with our friends down the road at Bridgetown Church, the church that planted ours, and we decided to embark on this series together, God and the Whole Person. Last week, if you were here, we talked about the way that we as people are more than just brains running abstract strings of information. We're embodied. We experience the world and our place in it through our minds and our physicality, through logic and through emotions and experience. And following Jesus is about all of us coming into alignment with the truth of God, not just intellectual belief, but body and soul as well. So maybe, in a way, the next few weeks are all about preparing ourselves to answer one simple question. But before I ask, let's go to the scriptures, Mark chapter 10. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence and respect? For the reading of the God-breathed scriptures. Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Verse 51, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. These words are inspired by God. Thanks, guys. Go ahead and take a seat. It's a weird question. Did Jesus really care what the blind man wanted? Was it uh, some kind of rhetorical teaching thing? Was it a test? Is he narrating for our sake? Did Jesus know all along what Bartimaeus wanted? Not in some, you know, supernatural prescient sense, but in the obvious way. Or would a different answer have changed anything? Does Jesus care about what you want when you ask? Or does he just know better and do what he was really going to do all along either way? And what do you want, really? Desire is a complicated concept. Now, I've been a Christian for a long time, relatively speaking, a long way to go, obviously. But the general sentiment that I've gathered along the way is that we're so messed up that all we want is evil. One of my favorite quotations from the Hebrew Scriptures is from Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Or another translation, hopelessly wicked. Who can even know it? And that rings true for me. I don't like that about myself or the human experience, but I've been around enough humans to know that we often want, really want, 
what isn't best for us or for other people or for society or for creation, willfully, knowingly, we can have all the right information about how the thing we want brings about so much bad in the world, but we want it. So there you go. I'm not even talking about like the big stuff, the real nasty stuff like ecological fallout and human trafficking and sex addiction. I'm talking about like McDonald's. You know, at this point in human history, a few people are laboring under the delusion that McDonald's is anything but bad news. Heck, in the uh, early Audis, the one dude made a whole documentary chronicling the bodily horrors of eating nothing but Big Macs and Chicken McNuggets for a whole month, I believe it was, which is sort of like a, a Johnny Knoxville stunt in slow motion. <laughs> you know, it's like, what, what happens if I tase myself in the eye? We already know the answer to the question, but yes, let's see. We'd like to see that. McDonald's is a, uh, a pop culture punchline, and yet it serves more than, I looked it up, 69 million customers daily. That's a lot of people because someone wants that Big Mac, man. Someone really wants it. A lot of people really want it. My dad died due to complications with ongoing health woes, all of which could have easily been remedied by just changing his diet, just eating different food. To him, not eating what he wanted to eat was a fate worse than death. Death! Desire can be stupid, evil, destructive. But is that really all we want? Destructive, destruction and evil. Earlier this week, my kids and I watched this uh, viral video in which some driver lost consciousness at an intersection. If you've seen the thing, it kind of unfolds like this. Their, their car stopped, but then sort of started drifting dangerously into the crossfire of this busy highway. And some people observed what was happening, and uh, a handful of nearby motorists suddenly became heroic. They leapt from their cars, and they chased after this wayward vehicle. They were putting themselves in front of it and pushing it to a stop and banging on the windows to revive the felled driver. Different ages and ethnicities and genders and shapes and sizes surrounding this car, united by their instinct to do good. And they broke the windows, revived the driver. Everyone was safe. The onlookers all cheered, hooray, it's a beautiful moment, it went all over the internet. And honestly, you know, I'm pretty cynical about things on the internet, but my kids and I were moved by the whole thing. There were no police officers or firefighters, just ordinary bystanders who saw another person, a stranger, in peril and wanted to do something about it. And we sat there admiring it. Desire, like most components of the human being, is a mixed bag. We want bad things, for sure, that much is obvious, and we talk about that often at church, throughout the scriptures, but that's not all we want. Catholic priest Ronald Rollheiser once argued, spirituality is ultimately about what we do with our desire. He argues that in the scriptures, desire itself is not inherently bad. It's not always and only bad. See, the goal for the disciple of Jesus is to First, reject the cultural narrative that gratifying any and every desire is necessary for freedom and self-realization. The idea that to be really you, you have to get what you want and do the things that you want. But rather than suppressing or denying all desire across the board, the Christian sets out to instead refine and sanctify desire by tracing it all the way back to God himself, where we learn that only God can meet and satisfy our deepest, truest desires. 
And that's about what we really want. Author and spiritual director Ruth Haley Barton wrote, In religious circles, we are much more accustomed to silencing our desire, distancing ourselves from it, because we are suspicious and afraid of its power. The 12th century Dominican monk Meister Eckert said, The reason we are not able to see God is the faintness of our desire. Uh, a missionary called Frank Labach argued that desire is the great difference between Jesus and the Buddha. The Buddhist teaching is abolish all desire in order to transcendent. Uh, the Jesus teaching is fix the full weight of your desire on the only one who can hold and satisfy it, and that's God. Theologian Philip Sheldrake wrote in his book, Befriending Our Desires, that our most authentic desires spring ultimately from the deep inner wells where the longing for God runs freely. In other words, what we really want is God. One more quote. I saved the C.S. Lewis quote for last. I don't know if you ever heard of this guy. He wrote some stuff down. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, keep your bookmark here in Mark chapter 10. We're going to come back before the night is over, but turn two Gospels forward to John chapter 9. Mark Luke, and then John chapter 9. Let's read the opening verses. The story goes, As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, because he was born blind? Now, in the ancient Hebrew world, a person born with a disability was often understood as kind of God's punishment for some secret sin. Someone did something really bad, God was ticked off about it, and so he had, to, he had to strike someone down. It's not something that's taught in the scriptures, but that didn't stop it from becoming a popular cultural assumption. I've met all kinds of people that make the same kind of assumption today. If something is going wrong, they can't help but wonder to themselves, is God mad at me? Is he mad at someone else? Why is everything going wrong? But back then, being born with a disability probably meant that this guy had also been excluded from the temple, ostracized from the community of God's people. He couldn't participate in the traditions and celebrations that united his people. And the shame of his blindness almost certainly affected his family, his parents, who we'll see in the text, even strangers assumed were guilty of some kind of sin. Hey, who messed up, this guy or his parents, just from seeing someone blind on the side of the road? So you're born blind, which is hard enough, alienating enough in and of itself, but even though you didn't ask to be blind and your blindness isn't your fault, you're driven from the loving intimacy of community, from the nurturing affection of family and your parents, from a sense of knowing others and being known by other people. Strangers pass on the street and they look at you and say to one another, hey, somebody messed up. But the story goes on. As he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, 
Before we can go on, let's clarify this and get this out of the way. Jesus is not saying that God willed or determined or caused this man's blindness just to make some kind of point later in life after he's good and suffered from the whole thing. All four Gospels consistently depict the healing work of Jesus as a revolt against the devil, not against God. For Jesus, sickness and suffering are not imposed by God. They're not God's will at all, actually, but they are the work of the Satan. The authors of the Scripture, the first disciples of Jesus, the earliest church fathers and mothers believe the same thing articulated in Acts. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil, not God, because God was with him. And don't misunderstand this to refer to some kind of, you know, spiritual oppression only. In Luke's gospel, Jesus encounters a woman uh, that the story describes as being crippled by a spirit for 18 years. And when Jesus describes her condition, he says that Satan is behind her physical disability. Should not this woman, Jesus says, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan, not God, has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? We read in 1 John, my favorite, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So to understand Jesus as saying that God blinded this man for some glorious purpose uh, to, is, means that we have to either ignore the other gospel stories and the rest of the New Testament for that matter, or else assume that God's work is somehow synonymous with the devil's work and that Jesus went around undoing everything God did in the first place. In his book, God at War, theologian Greg Boyd wrote of the man born blind, Jesus is simply saying that in contrast to the misguided speculations of the disciples, the only thing that matters concerning this man's blindness is that God can overcome it and thus be glorified through it. In the satanically ruled world in which he and his disciples minister and in which we ourselves still live, there is no discernible particular reason why this man was born blind. The disciples' questions were based on the false assumption that God is behind all things and thus that there must be a good reason for such things as blindness, punishing sin, building character, or glorifying God. Jesus is simply refuting this assumption. He is saying that the only response to this man's sorry condition is, let the works of God be manifested. And that's my point. Why is it easier for us to assume God arbitrarily blinds us according to some mysterious purpose than it is for us to assume God's only will and response to our brokenness is let the healing work of God be manifested. Everyone's got something. Some of you have something out there in the open already, at least in part, maybe. Maybe most people already know that you're a child of divorce and that's been really hard, or, or maybe even that you've suffered abuse in your life. Maybe people know about the loved one that died or, or the sickness or the breakup. But everyone has other things as well, the secret things able to hide themselves from even our own waking minds at times, the moment or moments that broke us in some way but then hid themselves in some deep faculty of our skulls, buried in a snarl of memories that we cannot untangle, something that your dad said to you, the time a friend spoke into your deepest fear about yourself with such precise cruelty that it took root and it grew like a dark, terrible vine, or something that someone did to you, or something you did to someone else, neither of which you've told anyone, the secret habit 
the secret thought, the secret hate, the unforgiveness that you dress up like self-protection? Or is it the fear, the thing that you've secretly begun to suspect may never happen, that you'll find love, or that you'll be the person you thought you'd be, or that you'll get better? Psychiatrist Kurt Thompson argues that all that we do, parenting, pastoring, farming, playing basketball, carpentry, police work, structural engineering, is done in response to love and shame competing for our attention, wrestling for authority over our memory, emotions, sensations, and behaviors. These two dominant effective forces of the universe represent the struggle between good and evil. This war occurs in every realm of embodied life which makes sense. You get hurt. There are consequences. Time goes by. Some conditions improve. You sort of feel better than you did, so you move on. But sometimes something deeper sets in, something more complicated, something against which band-aids and casts and ibuprofen prove inadequate. And maybe you make your peace with limping or maybe you learn to live with the chronic migraine. It comes and goes. There's good days and bad days. It sort of becomes part of you. People love to talk about pain when there's some redemptive punchline built in. We can get real about the suffering or the grief on the other side of it when we've become the hero of a harrowing story about how we survived or how we're surviving. I waited almost half a decade to bother telling anyone in the whole world exactly how dark things had become in my own head during one terrible season of my life. I gave snippets, glimpses, but never the whole picture. Why? I guess because if someone you love dies or if you get really sick, it's easier to understand that you did not invite the tragedy. It just happened to you. But when you have knowingly allowed the secret sin of your own self-hatred to unfold within when you've indulged it for years, how can you tell the story and be the bystander or the innocent victim, the blind man on the side of the road? I become for myself the disciple observing that man without a thought about healing, just who blew it? And the answer was me. I knew it was me. And maybe God wants me to learn a lesson, sure. Maybe he wants me to repent, that much is certain. But to say the only response to this man's sorry condition is let the works of God be manifested. Ha, right, if only. I, Christian of many years, pastor of many years, still struggled to believe that Jesus was who he says he is. But if you look back at John chapter 9 and watch what happens in the story, it gets weirder. Look at verse 6. After saying this, Jesus, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sense. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. The incredible intersection of agony and redemption in the story is that the focal point of this man's greatest suffering now becomes the focal point of his greatest joy. How could he even tell his story at all without the context of his agony? The beautiful thing obliterates the ugly thing. But for anyone to understand how incredible the story really is, they have to know how ugly the thing really was. I was lost but now I'm found. How bad was being lost? 
Jesus reaches down into the dirt in the story and he mixes it with saliva. Just as God took dirt from the earth and breathed into it the breath of life, from the mouth of God into the dust, Jesus brings new life. You can't make this stuff up. It's that good. I say it all the time. God is an artist. Symbols matter to God. But after this, what must have been the most incredible moment of this man's life, the story goes on. Everyone sees this guy they all knew had been blind walking around seeing stuff, and no one knows what to do with it. Eventually, they get him and they bring him before the religious leaders, and they ask him, the religious leaders that is, ask him what the heck happened. And the guy tells them this guy Jesus of Nazareth did it, and the religious leaders just can't wrap their minds around it. How? Why? What does it mean if it's true? They go back and forth over it, and they bring in the guy's parents, and they ask the parents what they think, but the parents are terrified to say anything one way or another. Remember, they've also experienced the pain of being labeled as terrible sinners for bearing a blind son. And this man had resorted to becoming a beggar, slouched on the side of the road, Where had his parents been? Did they pass him every day as he begged, knowing that they could see him in the dust, but he couldn't see them as they passed by? And if he's better, what does that mean for them? What has to change? Are they going to have to talk about all these awful years and untangle their resentments and and unforgiveness and confront the way that they've hurt their own child? When incredible healing really takes place, It often turns everything upside down. Sure, you get healed, but life as you know it gets disrupted. This guy got healed. You'd think everything would change for the better, but then look at this. When the man defends Jesus to the religious leaders, insisting it was Jesus who healed him, insisting that his healing was real, the religious leaders say this, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. The healing has thrown everything into chaos. He was forbidden from entering the temple because of his disability, finally gets in there to see the religious leaders, and they throw him right back out again. Maybe some of you already suspect that this is true, that healing turns everything upside down. We think of healing the way we think of going to the dentist for the first time in a decade. You know, Abby and I, we didn't have health insurance uh, for the entire first stretch of our adult lives until I became a pastor, actually. And when we got uh, health insurance, we got dental coverage. And she told me that she was panicked about going to the dentist. She said, what if she found out that there were all these unknown things wrong with her teeth or something, and and how much was it going to hurt to get it fixed, and how long was it going to take, and what was it going to cost her emotionally and physically and financially? But she also knew that not going wouldn't make any existing issues any less a reality. Ignorance is bliss until it isn't. And by the way, we've both been regular fixtures at the dentist for years now. Our teeth are fine. If you're wondering, go to the dentist. It's good. My point is healing scares us. I honestly cannot count how many times I've sat with someone who I assumed or believed with good reason was in desperate need of professional help and encouraged them make the call. I'm saying this as someone who seeks out and has enjoyed professional help for many years. Make the call. Set up an appointment with the counselor. Van City has a whole list of recommended counselors and therapists. And they say, yeah, absolutely. I totally need to do that just to shut me up. And they don't make the call. Because if they do, what will happen? Will they have to talk about that thing? Or how much would it hurt to fix it? Or how long is it going to take? Or they go once or twice so they can say they tried it and then bail. 
Because if they go any deeper than that, what's going to happen? If I sit down with the person God has asked and asked and asked me to forgive, what happens next? If I let the unforgiveness go, who will I be? Or if I bring the horrible, ugly thing out into the open, then what? Sure, maybe it goes away or I get healed, but what happens when everyone sees it? Or what happens for my friend, uh, my friends or my family if things change? Will we actually have to deal with what it meant to be lost if I actually get found? Letting Jesus heal me sounds good on paper, the way intense, invasive, life-saving surgery sounds necessary, but we're terrified of being laid open with our you know, wet insides glistening for the world to see. In C.S. Lewis's novel, The Great Divorce, there's an interesting scene where a ghost that had been languishing in hell is confronted by an angel who observes a small red lizard perched on the ghostly man's shoulder. The story goes that the ghost wants to visit heaven or has been allowed an opportunity to visit heaven, but the lizard chatters in his ear and makes the journey untenable. So the angel approaches the ghosts, a ghost and asks about the lizard. I'm reading from the page now. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, ah, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? He didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, you know, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think over what you've said carefully. Honestly, I will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be so silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Well, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know, you think I'm a coward, but it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back to tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the thing without asking me before I even knew it would be all over now if you had? I cannot kill it against your will. It's impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. And then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud, even I could hear what it was saying. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right, the ghost said. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may? 
blast you, go on, can't you get it over with, do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, God help me, God help me. Some of you, I'm assuming, understand that scene better than others. Now, with all that in the back of your mind, look at this question again. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. But please listen. The healing and its ensuing chaos is not the end of the story. Look at this. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, the religious leaders, and when Jesus found him, so in the story, Jesus goes and gets him. The healing isn't over yet. There's more. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus' favorite name for himself. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The most important part of the healing story is not when he receives sight, but when he learns who Jesus really is. Now, to end tonight, turn back to Mark chapter 10. This is where we'll conclude Mark chapter 10, and let's see how the story that began our evening wraps up. Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 46. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, of, uh, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked Bartimaeus and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up. On your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and, listen, followed Jesus along the road. What happens when you get healed and see Jesus for who he really is? You follow Jesus along the road. Now listen, I'm almost done. I know as well as anyone else that when someone scratches at the walls that we build up to keep the painful work of healing out, tuning out becomes something of a coping mechanism. We think, like the man in C.S. Lewis's story, not tonight, we think later, we think when everything is just right, maybe then, maybe another night. So I'm asking you, relax. I'm not going to demand that you do all the work right here and right now don't shut me out. Listen for just another couple of minutes. I want to invite you to begin to consider a profound question that Jesus has been asking and continues to ask. What do you want Jesus to do for you? It's not a trick. It's not rhetorical. It's not a test. And it's not that simple. What do you want really? Not a magic trick, not a simple fix. In this season, at this stage, what do you want Jesus to do for you? With all the complications and deep hidden pain and likely disruption or possible chaos, your heart laid bare before God, if you are being honest with yourself and with Him, what do you want? Some of you, 
allow yourselves to entertain this question but cannot help but suspect it doesn't really matter. If you tell God what you want, he's probably just going to do what he was going to do one way or the other. One of my favorite quotes from Dallas Willard is this, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he's only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. So allow yourself to imagine it actually matters, that it could change everything, and consider the question, what do you want from Jesus? I'll be honest with you guys, I am inviting you to consider this question and to ask yourself if you will have the courage to bring the answer to Jesus this Lenten season leading up to Resurrection Sunday, with what I'm assuming for many of you will be a host of whispering voices rebuking you, demanding your silence, the red lizard on your shoulder chattering, don't bother the rabbi, be quiet. What would it mean for you to shout, Son of David, have mercy on me? How hard would that be? And what would it cost you to be honest about what you want? Or a better way of asking, what will it cost you if you don't? A while back, my son Beck, he developed a strange new phobia of passing between uh, this you know, movie theater that I built in our garage and the laundry room where we feed the cat. The movie room is usually dark because you only you know, turn on the lights if you go in there, and it's kind of cold because we close up the vents unless, again, someone's in there. So you have to go through this dark, cold room just to feed the cat, which is a simple chore that my kids are kind of accustomed to carrying out every morning and afternoon. And one day, I asked Beck, hey, would you go feed Mosey the cat? And he suddenly looked panicked. He had never been before, uh, and he told me that he w he's scared. I could tell he was embarrassed to admit it. Kids are like that. They develop brief, fleeting, often irrational phobias of a given thing based on you know a scene in a movie or a story they've overheard or a bad dream that they had. But Beck was scared to tell me why he was scared. I didn't you know push him in the moment. Uh, but later, when it was just the two of us, I asked him what was up. How come you were afraid to go? feed the cat earlier, and he told me that he imagined there was a monster in the movie room just out of sight in the darkness to the left of the door that was waiting there and would snatch him up as soon as he stepped into its shadow. And of course, he knew, in his mind anyway, that the monster wasn't real, but he couldn't shake the feeling, and the feeling scared him. This is no big deal, I told him. I'd been a kid once, I, re I reminded him. I could relate, you know, I have the same kind of imagination that imagines monsters for fun or sometimes less so. The next day I told him, you know what, let's go feed the cat together. I held his hand, I walked in front of him, I opened the door, I turned on the lights, I stepped into the movie room, I took an inventory, no monsters. I led him through the room and to the cat's dish, which he filled as he had done before he was afraid. If you do answer the question, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Chances are you'll still have to walk through the dark room and confront the monster you're afraid waits there. But Jesus will go before you and 
He will take you by the hand. He, he will turn on the light. He will clear away the darkness. He will rebuke the monster and send it away and make it possible for you to go at all. But you still have to go. So what do you want, really? In The Great Divorce, after the red lizard has been killed, it transforms before the narrator's eyes into this beautiful stallion. And the angel who freed the ghost of the lizard tells the narrator, lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise. And as the narrator listened, he hears this chorus of worship erupt all around him. The master says to our master, come up, share my rest and splendor till all natures that were your enemies become slaves to dance before you. From beyond all place and time, out of the very place, authority will be given you. The strengths that once opposed you shall be obedient fire in your blood and heavenly thunder in your voice. Overcome us that so overcome we may be ourselves. We desire the beginning of your reign as we desire dawn and dew, wetness at the birth of light. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to ask this question with bravery. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.